Well, uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark as we're going uh, through the series. We've been going through the whole of the book, um, and we're getting to the end. I keep saying that. I've been saying that for a while now. <laughs> we really are. Um, and we pick up on Wednesday of uh, Holy Week. So uh, this is the beginning uh, of Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we are here to rest in our identity in Jesus, to be renewed by his word, and to be reinvigorated to go out into the world. So let's pray that he would do that by his word. Lord, speak with us, speak to us, convict us by your spirit, illuminate your word that we might be strengthened for today, for this week for what lies ahead, that we might grow in our love for you, that we might see clearly how to love our neighbor, and most of all, that we'd be ready to see you face to face. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what do you long for? You remember when we started this pandemic? We all thought we were just going to be our house for like two weeks. And then we were going to have a big block party at the end of that. Uh, and that hasn't happened. Two weeks turned into two months, turned into a year, turned into over a year. I, uh, I got my second shot this week, and I thought that's going to be the moment. Things are going to be better. And then I realized, oh, there's two more weeks till you know, the sort of full <laughs> immunity is kicked in, at, you know. And then I realize I'm still responsible to other people that I interact with, you know, and it just like, just never seems like it's going to end. I keep wanting something to, some sort of clear mark, right, the end, and I'm going to do all these fun things. Well, what we, I mean, that's a simple illustration, but what we want in life really does shape how we live our lives, what we desire really animates how we go through life. Some of us just want the pandemic to be over, and we kind of 
convince ourselves that I can break all these rules or whatever. Some of us are really want to be safe. So we go the extra mile on measures that maybe aren't actually real or helping. I'm not trying to knock how you manage all those things. I am saying what we want fuels the way we respond. Well, this is a story this portion of the story is clearly about our desires. It is about good desires. It is about competing desires. And it's about a fulfilling desire. It's about good desires, competing desires, and a fulfilling desire. Well, there's one person we know desires what is good in this story. It's this woman who anoints Jesus. Uh, Actually, we know who this woman is because when John tells it in his gospel, in John 12, we find out that it is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Uh, There's a bunch of Marys in the Bible. It's a little hard to keep straight. There's, of course, Jesus' mother, Mary. There is Mary Magdalene, who's a, a, a different woman who's had apparently seven demons possessing her at one point. Um, there's, uh, there's another Mary who's the mother of James and Joseph. There's another Mary who's the wife of Clopas. I mean, there's, Mary was a really well-known, popular name. Uh, but this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Of course, you know, probably, if you've been around the church, uh, if you've grown up in the church, the story of Mary and Martha from Luke 10 where Mary comes and sits at Jesus' feet to learn, while Martha is doing all the things she's supposed to do as a host and gets really mad at Mary. Uh, It's not a good look for Martha, that story, right? Um, But we learn about Mary wanting what is best. Uh, Of course, we also see them in the story of Lazarus in John 11. Actually, the curious thing about the story of Lazarus, if you go back and read it in John 11, is that the people Jesus interacts with aren't really, it's not really Lazarus. It's Mary and Martha. And it's another fascinating moment to kind of think about their different personalities and how Jesus responds to it, but this isn't a story about that. But this is that Mary who comes and anoints Jesus. And what she does is take, takes this ointment, nard, I don't, that's... Interesting word. It always sounds weird saying it. Uh, I guess it's kind of a musky ointment. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's very aromatic. You, would, you could not miss. And actually what she has to do is dump the whole thing on Jesus. Because uh, these alabaster jars, we do know this archaeologically, they were sealed. This was a one-time use situation. <laughs> You had to crack that thing open. So once you cracked it open, you used it all. Uh, and it was expensive. Not- you notice that the disciples see this and are kind of scandalized by it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But they're scandalized. And they, they say it's 300 denarii, which is a, denarii, a denarius is about a day's wage for the average worker. So it's nearly a year's salary. So this is very expensive. And this is probably a prized possession from Mary's standpoint. This was the sort of thing you knew 
you are going to save for the most important event of your life? Apparently, Mary thinks this is the most important event of her life. We don't know actually what Mary thinks is going on at this point because it doesn't tell us. Jesus says this is for his burial. Does she realize that? I don't know. Although, of course, if there's one person that we know that hung on Jesus every word, it was Mary. And remember, Jesus has been blunt with his followers that he is going to Jerusalem to die. So maybe while the the 12 disciples are kind of clueless about what's actually happening, maybe she actually does recognize it. I I don't know. Whatever the case is, Mary... Wants to celebrate the Lord. She wants to celebrate Jesus and what he's doing. That brings up embarrassment for the disciples. Notice what they say in verse 5, right? They're, uh, They're scandalized that this could have been sold and given to the poor. Not a bad point, right? Like, as it stands, This is a good question, right? Is this a good investment of this kind of... But what Jesus points out in verse 7 helps us to understand where they're coming from more clearly. This is what he says. He says, for you will always have the poor with you. Jesus doesn't mean that as an excuse, right? Let's be be clear about that. The rest of the Bible tells us to care for the poor. A lot, like all over the place. Uh, the poor and the vulnerable, we're supposed to care for them. So Jesus is not saying that as an excuse, but this is, what, this is the kicker, right? Whenever you want, you can do good for them. See what he's pointing out. He's saying, I've been with you guys. We've been walking around the city all week. What have you done for the poor? And now you're concerned? Get this? In other words, he's pointing out that while that, is, while that may in and of itself be a valid question about how we allocate resources, they are clearly finding an argument that suits what's going on inside them. They feel upset about what's happening, and they're trying to figure out why they should be upset. They're embarrassed that Mary would do this that Mary would celebrate him in a way that they don't or they haven't. And of course, Jesus then blesses Mary. He says, we're gonna, we're gonna t- you're going to tell her story everywhere the gospel goes, which is fascinating because what do we know about kind of common women from the ancient world? Nothing. We know almost nothing about almost any common woman in the ancient world. I mean, any, anybody that's not wealthy, we barely know anything about. And then, of course, with women, we know that much less in the ancient world. But we know Mary, and we know her story. But I don't want to pass that question by about, like, is, are they, should, they have, should she have wasted all this ointment? Because we find ourselves in the church in a 
kind of on uneven footing now. It used to be that, certainly in Western culture, that Christianity thought of itself as occupying the moral high ground. Especially when we defined ourselves over against, say, kind of the Soviet Union and, you know, atheistic communism. We, decide, we thought of ourselves as occupying the moral high ground, but that script has flipped. And now in many corners of the Western world, we are accused of being immoral in the church or of not really having the right priorities. And sometimes maybe that's true, right? I mean, I certainly look at some church situations and I think, well, that's such a waste of money. Um, I've submitted a request for a jet, but the elders are still getting back to me. But um, I can certainly look around and see lots of places where I think there's waste. I can see places where the church has been hypocritical. That isn't hard to find, is it? And yet, it's fascinating. The Bible, like I said, is always telling us to care for the poor. Jesus isn't saying to overlook those sorts of things. The care for the vulnerable. In fact, even the, all over the New Testament we're told for this. James tells us the religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Again, those who are there, that's a very vulnerable position to be in. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we're told that. And all, I mean, this is one of the things that helped build the reputation of the church in the ancient world is that they not only cared for their own poor, they cared for the poor throughout the city. To this day, there are all sorts of institutions to care for the vulnerable that come out of the church. Now, again, I'm not saying that the church has always gotten that right, but this one question of worshiping God is important to see, right? See, the question isn't whether we should do those other things. It is whether we understand them in perspective, right? Whether our priorities are right. And in fact, we live in a day and age in which we are told to rush into action. We're encouraged to rush into action, to care for the ills of the world, which is not in and of itself a problem, not in and of itself a bad thing. But we're told that it doesn't matter why you're motivated to do that whatever your motivations are. And the problem with that is it doesn't work. Eventually, we will disagree on what is the right thing. And more than that, we will constantly be comparing ourselves to one another if we are not confident in some other place first. If we are not confident in who we are because of our love for God, then we will always approach our love of our neighbor as some way of convincing ourselves we're good. We always will. I mean, isn't this what's, what we do? And we think we will, we will either have to convince ourselves, well, I'm good enough compared to who? The people I know? 
as we all awkwardly look at each other. Um, compared to some imaginary standard, we will always be thinking about that. And then if we have a guilty conscience about it, it will never be enough. Because, and look, on this point, Jesus is noticing a fact, right? There will always be more to do. There always will be. Now we, I mean, look, the last year has seen a whole host of social problems, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't care about those. Don't hear me saying we shouldn't care about those. I am saying that those are bigger than we can handle. We can't, I'm not saying we shouldn't go to work on them. I'm saying we got to recognize that we can, we, we can work with every ounce of our being and there will still be more problems. And so if you try to engage that thinking, well, I'm going to be the kind of person that ends this, you will always be exhausted. You will always feel fruitless. If you enter, however, with a different identity, with a confidence some other place, then you can pour yourself into that work without being burned out. You can recognize when you've, when you've done what you can and be proud of that, <laughs> thankful for that opportunity, but recognize there's still more to do. It gives us a sense of proportionality of what I can do, what we can do as a community, what others can do, because we're not looking for a sense of approval from what we accomplish. But our sense of approval comes from God. Well, that's what it means to have a good desire. But of course, there are a bunch of people here who don't desire that. Do you notice that in verses 1 and 2? Of course, we're, we see the religious leaders. Now, they think they love God. Right? Let's be fair. They, that's, what the, that's how they think of themselves. They love God. And they think that Jesus is challenging that. But they have other ends. You see, they've been threatened by Jesus. We've seen this since he arrived in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 12, we learned that they were already thinking about how to put an end to Jesus. They've, uh, they are thinking about the crowds, right? They're making their plan. And they want to get rid of Jesus. They're trying to think through the logistics with the crowd. They recognize that Jesus has, since he got to Jerusalem, taken on a trenchant religious critique, right? He has gone after them relentlessly. They're threatened. They're insulted. And now their plan seems to be to wait till the end of the festival. So Passover is about to arrive. Uh, Friday of, the, of this week, not this current week of ours, but in the Bible, the week that we're talking about, that Friday is, is, uh, is the first day of Passover. And, of course, it'll start that evening with, at sundown, uh, the evening before what we would call Thursday night. But uh, that will be the beginning of it. And it goes for a week. It's a celebration for a week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is celebrating the Exodus. All this, we're going to talk a lot more about that stuff next week. But they're thinking, okay, we're just going to bide our time because there's a big crowd here. 
and they were like singing Jesus praises <laughs> last Sunday when he came into town, so we're going to let that die down. But then Judas shows up in verses 10 and 11. Right After this incident with this woman, that's the breaking point for Judas. And he shows up and gives them an offer they can't refuse. Right, I'm going to help you find just the right situation to arrest him. At night, in a secluded place, nobody will be around. That's their plan. Which I guess brings us to Judas, right? What's going on with Judas? In verses 10 and 11, we see that Judas is done with Jesus. This moment uh, apparently pushed him over the edge. Now, that's this, the story I mentioned where we find out that this is Mary in John 12 also tells us that Judas was, kept the money and was kind of dipping into it. Um, and so, obviously, if there was more money in the pot, Judas would have a little bit more to take. Uh, That's clearly what's going on. But I do think that the money is not exactly the thing. To understand Judas, it's not just merely that he had a little less money he could go after and use for his own ends. I think it's better to understand that Judas has already given on, on Jesus a long time ago. That the money was just the fringe benefit that kept him there. And when that dries up, that's the last straw. Judas was disappointed in Jesus. Apparently has been for some time. The only thing keeping him around was that he could take a little money here and there. And of course, the other disciples are also disappointed in Jesus. Uh, They think that Jesus has kind of lost perspective. The ideal that they had for the kingdom is not really coming about. We arrived celebrating you as the Messiah like three days ago, Jesus. Three, <laughs> what, what's the deal? When are we going to get going here on overthrowing the Romans and taking back political power? You see, they had an ideal of the kingdom that was not working out. In Mary's, in their perspective, worthless action just highlights that. Jesus is just wasting this money. Aren't we on a mission? Aren't we trying to achieve the kingdom of God? All of this is to say that you can see that all of these actors that are involved here all have some other competing desire in their life. They all think of themselves as loving God. But they have a particular version of what that ought to be. They love God plus some kind of benefit. God plus some particular way that the world ought to be that their world ought to be. Whether that's their place as religious authorities, whether that is the money (laughs) that Judas is getting, whether that is a vision of society that the disciples have, 
They all have some other competing desire. They, if you ask them if they love God, they would every one to a person say, yes, of course, I love the Lord. But Jesus disappoints all of them, frustrates or even angers all of them. And our moral posturing is a good gauge for this. It's a good gauge for what competing desires we have. You know what I'm talking about when I say moral posturing, right? We, I mean, this is nothing new under the, this, there's nothing new under the sun. This is nothing new, right? For all of eternity, well, not eternity, but since creation, there have always been people who have wanted to look good in front of others, Right? present ourselves as if we're taking the right stance. We know what the right conviction is to have, and we're going to posture ourselves so we have that. And again, as we already talked about, that's exactly what the disciples do towards Mary, right? And they scold her. A strong word, right? They scold her because she didn't take the right stance. Of course, in a technological age, right, this is the worst. We're constantly virtue signaling, setting ourselves up so that we look good, so that we have the illusion that we're doing something about these problems, but we're just branding ourselves. I'm, I'm not saying you can't share your opinions on social media. I'm not saying you can't support people on social media. I am saying, let's be careful about what's going on in our own hearts in the midst of that, about whether we're just posturing for others. Because what we're really doing is managing our shame, our sense that we are inadequate to the task, our sense that maybe we are the ones that are failing. Because we are disappointed all the time in ourselves and also in what we think our lives ought to be. And I'll tell you, the two telltale signs of our shame at work, of our disappointment at work, are anxiety and anger. You see, what the disciples say, the question they ask about whether this is a good investment, again, is not necessarily a bad question, and it is a good thing to have conviction about moral questions. That is a fine thing. That is a good thing. Conviction is a determination, right, based in moral clarity. That is fine. Anxiety is the fear that if we slip up or if other people don't shape up, everything will be lost. And to the degree to which I'm, I'm taking that in on myself, I'm anxious about what I'm doing. Do other people see that I'm, I'm good? Am I really, am I really in the, I love that phrase, on the right side of history, right? Like as if we know history. As if we understand the past very well and as if we have any idea what the future is. But... Right, we're at, we ask ourselves that kind of question all the time, right? Like, am I, that, or, or our sense of anxiety about what everybody else is doing. 
boy, we've got to do this, or they have to do that, or all is going to be lost. There's a lot of anxious churches. Churches that exude anxiety, right? That we have to do this thing, or else the kingdom of God is going to fail. Or our church is not going to work out. It's all going to come apart. Of course, it's true that the church has lots of needs, right? We need volunteers, and we got lots of things we're trying to do. All those things are true. But the delusion that we bring ourselves to to help manage our sense of shame or disappointment is anxiety. That I've got to do this or it's all falling apart. The other is anger. And there is such a thing as righteous anger, right? There is such a thing as righteous anger. And it's good, but it is rare and it's hard-earned. And the sure sign, especially when we're talking about dealing with other people of righteous anger, is that part of our desire is for them to change for what is good. Not to simply lash out at them, but to see them, you know, the biblical word is repent (laughs) and turn to what is good. And most of us, even if there's a hint of righteous anger in how we feel, there's also a lot of unrighteous anger in the midst of it too. It is the threat that other people are not doing what they're supposed to do. And so we deal with our anxiety by lashing out at them. They're a threat. So anxiety and anger are important telltale signs of what our competing desires are. What are the things that make you anxious? Because that is a desire that's competing for your sense of who you are and how much your life matters. What are the things that make you angry? Because those are the things that give you a sense of being significant, of being important. That might take a little thinking, doesn't it? And it's hard to go down that road. It's hard to admit to some of that. But look at, look at what Jesus does. You see, the good desire for God doesn't disappoint. Jesus responds to Mary. He responds to what she does, and he blesses it. And he treats it as a preparation for his own death. Again, whether Mary understood that is not entirely clear. But Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows he's going to die. And what he, and what he calls what she does is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. The Greek word kalos can mean something that's good in a moral sense, but also aesthetic sense, right? That it's beautiful. It lives sort of on the boundary of those two things. Depending on the context, you kind of gather what it is. But he recognizes that it's not just good what she does. It's beautiful. 
Beauty is important if we want to understand our desires. Because what we talk about when we talk about something being beautiful is we're talking about what we find compelling. Something that draws us in. So, you know, so it obviously don't just mean sort of physical beauty in this sense, right? The sort of thing, though, that captures our heart. You see, because we know a lot of things are true, but it's not until we actually find those an attractive option to act in line with it that we actually do it. Those of you who are doctors know exactly what we're talking about, right? Like, people know what they're supposed to do. I know I should eat better, but I don't, right? Like, because it's just not an attractive option. I've, I've disparaged kale many times in sermons and will continue to do so. I know I should have more kale on my diet. Man, it's tough. It's tough. Um, I love, I'll tell you, a good example of this, right, is the fried Oreo. Anybody had a fried Oreo at, like, the fair? It is compelling. It's so good. And I want to believe because of that, that it's not that bad for me. And it certainly is. I think you take like a, a day off your life every fried Oreo you eat. You know, it's like, it is, it is terrible for me, but I, it's so compelling, I want to believe. Right? Which means that actually there's a way in which beauty can be used to undermine what is good. Uh, this is, of course, exactly what pornography is about, right? Take something that's supposed to be beautiful in the human form and uses it for terrible ends. There, they tell, there are stories from Nazi Germany about how the, those who were running the, the internment camps would listen to the most sort of sentimental romantic music at night to convince themselves that they were building this beautiful society through the horrors that they were committing. Beauty can be used, misused, I should say, to reinforce what it, not only what is not true, but what is frankly evil. But beauty also brings to life what is true and what is good. You probably know that scene in the Shawshank Redemption, right, where uh, Andy locks himself in the warden's office. Uh, Andy's sort of the main character. He's a, they're all prisoners. If you, if you don't know Shawshank Redemption, which is like on a loop on t- cable TV all the time. But uh, you know, Andy locks himself in the warden's office, and they're all in this dehumanizing prison. And at the risk of his own, frankly, his own life, right, he plays over the intercom a duet from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. And all these guys are out in the prison yard just listening to this, right? Because their world, which has been so dehumanizing, all of a sudden has something, you know, strikingly beautiful enter it. And this is, the, this is what Red, who's the narrator, says. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. <laughs> the truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think they sing, they're singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words, and it makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and farther 
than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped its drab little, flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. And for the briefest moment, every last man in Shawshank felt free. Because it was humanizing, right? Beauty had showed them something that was true about them. That was beautiful. Even though everything else around them told them the opposite. You know what stories the early church told about the good life? They were stories of martyrs. You know, in the evangelical world, when we like to have people tell stories, we like to find celebrities, athletes who have come to faith, in the subtext of that, and I, look, I'm glad if somebody comes to faith who's, who's, you know, that's their story, but the subtext of telling those sorts of stories over and over again is that we try to, we convince ourselves that we can have success in all the good things and be respected and be admired and be loved and be beautiful and be all of these other things and be faithful to God. And I don't know what your story is. And look, the odds that really any of us will be martyrs is pretty low. But the reason that the early church told those stories was not to communicate that everybody ought to be a martyr, but that to love God and to love him only is a beautiful thing. And that to have all your other priorities realigned by the love of God is a beautiful thing. And this is beautiful, not merely because of what Mary does, but because it is pointing to what Jesus will do. It is a anointing for his burial. It is a celebration of what he will accomplish at the cross. The cross, then, is our most beautiful symbol, if I can put it that way. And it's weird to think about the cross as a beautiful thing. We're a little bit immune to thinking about this because we wear necklaces and things that have crosses on them. But it was, of course, a terrible instrument of death. We talked last week in that long passage in Mark 13 about how, in fact, you know, from the vantage point of what we thought we were accomplishing what Satan thought he was accomplishing, it was an abomination. But of course, the cross is the most prominent moment when God uses what is evil and turns it for good. And he puts himself in the crosshairs. He puts himself in the position to be the victim. That is why we ironically call the Friday of this week, Good Friday. Because it is good. Not because the event was good, but because God uses it for his good ends. And so the cross tells us a terrible truth, doesn't it? A truth we don't like to hear about who we are. 
But it also, and more importantly, tells us the beautiful truth about God's love for us and the extent to which he would go. One artist, a guy named Bruce Herman, says this, the ascended Christ still bears earthly wounds. Notice that when Jesus was raised, he still has. He still bears the marks. And his new body is a starting point for a new aesthetic, a broken beauty, if you will, and as a means of working through and beyond pain to a perfection that need not participate in idealization in unattainable standards of our celebrity and youth-obsessed culture. The broken beauty of Jesus is what Mary was celebrating. Because the cross is beautiful. Because it shows us the beautiful heart of God. It shows us the full extent of his love. It shows us where grace can be found It shows us what God will do and is doing in even the darkest moments. And so our worship of God is beautiful because it's a response to the beauty of his character. And that is the fulfilling desire of the gospel. That is what God wants us to desire. There are so many things that we want. And the longer you live, the more they multiply. There's so many things to long for in life. Mary chose the better portion on more than one occasion. Let's do the same. Lord, we pray that you would show us the beauty of the cross. Show us the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished. Teach us to see clearly the difficult truths that it communicates about us. But more than that, remind us that all of the best things the best thing is to love you and to be with you. I pray that that conviction would grow deep. That whether we're seeing it for the first time or whether we're seeing it for the hundredth time, Lord, that you would remind us of how good you are and that we would find it beautiful. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.